Any children go out in this, Tammy? I didn't have a children's sermon prepared this morning. Good morning again. I would ask if you have your Bibles with you, open to 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And then later we'll be looking at 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. October the 31st of 1517, about 504 years ago this very day, a 33-year-old monk named Martin Luther nailed a list of 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And there's a picture of the door, and engraved on it is his 95 theses. This resulted in a historical movement known as the Protestant Reformation. Although the Reformation already started to happen in little pockets, this was kind of like the final watershed moment that really kicked it off. Now, Martin didn't create any new truth or truth. Rather, he rediscovered biblical truth that had been lost. This resulted in five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Sola Scriptura, by Scripture alone. Sola Fide, by faith alone. Solus Christos, Christ alone. And Sola Di Gloria, glory to God alone. Now this morning we're going to look at Sola Scriptura, which is Scripture alone. You can make the argument that this is the most important one because it's the foundation for Sola Fidei, which is faith alone, and Sola Christos, Christ alone. You see, Martin Luther lived in the age where many additions have been made to the church. And he specifically struggled with a lot of things, but particularly the doctrine or teaching of purgatory and indulgences. Now, indulgences were being sold, and that's what built St. Peter's Basilica. What a indulgence is, you could pay that for the forgiveness of sins. Now, it's been said that Bishop Tisdale has been uh, named as the author of this saying, but we're not quite sure who actually said it, if he actually went around saying it or not. But here's what's the saying that was going around. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So basically, you were buying forgiveness, and the church would give you a piece of paper, and you could actually buy people out of purgatory. Now, he searched the scriptures for these two things, but came convinced that it was unbiblical. Now, those who oppressed him agreed that these Two teachings, purgatory and indulgences, were not found in Scripture. However, they believed in the tradition of the church and that the authority of the Pope was equal to Scripture. And since the Pope and church tradition said these things are true, therefore they are true. But Luther challenged us by concluding Scripture stood in judgment over the Pope and church tradition. And on April 18th, 1521, he was given the opportunity to renounce his views or be excommunicated by the church. And here is his response, quote, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything since it's neither safe nor right to go against my conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. 
me. God, help me. Amen. There's a lot more to be said about the Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther and also John Calvin, many others. Uh, time does not permit to go into all that. It's a great, huge subject. Uh, Protestant Reformation only changed religious, but it also changed the social standings. There was no, back then you had the rich and the educated, you had the poor and uneducated. There was no middle class, so it changed everything. But here's my point as we look at this day and think back. You know, as we continue on in our journey, there's a lot of imposters, phonies, frauds, and shams, the kind that Martin Luther was fighting against. And they come along from time to time. And I remember what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 state. It says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, listen, will be persecuted. Not maybe, but will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Can I just say, anytime you hear someone stand in the pulpit and say, I have some new truth that I alone have discovered, you better stand up and say something or get up, leave, and run. There's nothing new under the sun. Go back to scripture because to cure what we see happening in our country is to devote ourselves to scripture and scripture alone there's nothing wrong with tradition but tradition is trumped by scripture so that said let's take a look at our text in second timothy chapter 3 starting in verse 14 paul writing to young timothy he tells him in verse 14 you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings or the holy scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God or God breathed. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Go back to verse 14. Telling Timothy to continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. That Greek word translated continue is also translated hold to or remain. And you find it in John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, or if you hold to my teaching, that's NIV, then you are truly disciples of mine. Now this word in it has the understanding. It's not just knowing the right answer. It's not knowing, just knowing the Bible, knowing the teachings, as we would say in the political realm, being conservative, but you need to live it out. Apply what you have learned. Don't let it go in one ear and out the other, but apply it to your lives. And look at the rest of verse 14. Knowing from whom you have learned them from. That word whom, whom, I can say that right? Whom, there it is, is a plural pronoun, plural in the Greek. So it's not just one individual. He's telling Timothy, remember who taught you. Now, he could be referring to Timothy's mother, Eunice, 
or his grandmother Lois back in chapter 1, verse 5. Perhaps Paul was referring to himself or a reference to other godly instructors that we read about in 2 Timothy 2, 2. The things that you learn from me among my many... Um, from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, Timothy learned this from a great company of teachers. These teachers assured Timothy of his reality and truthfulness. So there's no need for Timothy to go out and spend his energy looking for some new fable, some new novelty, some new truth to preach and talk about and teach. He must remain in the truth in which he has learned. And that speaks to us today. We must remain solid in the truth which we have learned. And the beginning of that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who he was, what he did, where he is now. All those things are, that's Christianity 101. I want you to know, and perhaps you know this already, that Christian. Christianity is being attacked, and church is no longer arguing over the color of carpet or ceiling fans. So we're starting to argue over things of if Jesus was born of a virgin. Well, if Jesus was not born of a virgin, he had the sinful nature of the sacrifice is not worthy of it. It couldn't save us, then where do we stand? We should know basic Christianity 101 is my point. That is under attack. So we have to remain in the truth in which we have learned. Look what he says in verse 15. He tells them, from childhood you have known the sacred writings or holy scriptures. Notice this, Jewish parents would normally begin instructing their children at the age of five. I'm going to try to get this name right. Rabbi Shanu Zalman, who lived from 1745 to 1812, he wrote a book called The Code of Jewish Law. Listen to what he says, quote, When a child begins to speak, the father should begin teaching him verses of the Torah. Now, the Torah is reference to the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Vegas, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's all one story. Now, in today's time and age, Rabbi Shemuel Kogan, in his article, What Age Does a Child's Torah Education Begin?, He writes, quote, perhaps a child does not yet comprehend what he is saying, yet he begins to build an appreciation and respect for the Torah, end of quote. My point being, education, training the child begins in the home with the mother and the father. But specifically, they're talking about the father in Jewish homes. Parents have a responsibility, a duty, if you will, to teach their children biblical truth. I know you're familiar with Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not part from it. Teach those kids. I wandered away from the church. I never made a proclamation of faith, but I just walked out of the church after my parents were divorced, never went back. But when I gave my life back to Christ, I made that journey, and a year later I started going to seminary. It was amazing to me. I could tell you where that story's at. Name it, not chapter and verse. Oh, that's in Samuel. Oh, man, that's over. Because of things I was taught as a child. Here's interesting. I didn't know at the time, but these two people were put into my life to lead me back to Christ. I was terrible. Let's just put it that way at work. And 
these two guys were talking to me, and I told them, I said, I bet you what, you buy me supper if I can name all the Old Testament books in order by memory. They didn't believe me, and guess what? I did it. That's because I learned it as a child. I hadn't said it a long, long time, but I remembered it. That's what Proverbs 22, 6 is talking about. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, listen to this. Fathers. Fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's first and foremost. Before sports, before academics, before anything else, we must train them. And I'm telling you now, what we see happening is a product of this not happening in the home. It's sad to say that churches across this great land, people are waiting for the youth minister to take care of it, or the pastor to take care of it, or the Sunday school teacher to take care of it. No, you have a responsibility. And by the way, me being a daddy never stops. That's the most sobering thought I can think of. Even though my girls are grown, off on their own, I will never stop being their daddy. I will never cross the goal line and spike the ball. It doesn't happen. I'm forever there. And I'm supposed to be speaking that truth into their lives, regardless how old I am and regardless how old they are. He says, from childhood, Timothy, you have known these things. These holy scriptures is literally sacred writings in the Greek. Perhaps that is marking a stark contrast what Timothy had learned to the mindless heresies that were going on in that time. He realized this is a reference to the Old Testament because the New Testament wasn't there yet. It was still being written. Look what he says about these holy scriptures or sacred writings. Look back in the verse. They are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. That's the aim of the content found within the sacred writings or scriptures. And because Timothy had studied that, he had been grounded in that wisdom and enlightenment that will lead him to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the scriptures themselves cannot save you, but they point to the one who can. And that is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They point to the Savior who can provide it. Now, the instruction of the Scriptures or teaching of the Scriptures about salvation relate in two different areas. First, they describe the process of conversion, what saves us. And it's kind of really hard to narrow down one text when it comes to this. But I'll use Romans 5, 9. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, Jesus. How we are saved, what saves us, is the precious blood of Christ that was spilled on Calvary that covers your sin and covers mine. We have a hymn, many hymns are, oh, the precious blood of Christ. Have you been washed in the blood? So on and so forth. That's what saves us. Second, it shows us how we are to live, how to grow and to serve, or how we are to work out our salvation. I didn't say work for, I said work out. As it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, everything that God has given you Work it to grow in your relationship to Christ. It doesn't save you. You have to work it out. 
How dare we trample on the precious blood of Christ and forsake him when we do that? We've been given a great gift. A gift you can never pay. A debt you can never repay back. These two themes, if you will, are found in both the Old and the New Testament. You have to remember that Paul and his readers had a Christological interpretation. They saw the Old Testament scriptures as providing wisdom for salvation. In other words, the Old Testament pointed to the Messiah that was fulfilled in Christ Jesus, which is one thing you will learn about in our Sunday school class taught by Ms. Brother Tyler over here, learning all the different prophecies and how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. He's the Messiah that the Old Testament's constantly pointing to. Look what John 5, 39 says. This is Jesus speaking. John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Old Testament points to Christ. The New Testament points back to Christ. In fact, the whole entire Bible is about Christ. The Messiah. By the way, his last name is not Christ. Literally in the Greek is Jesus the Christ. That's his title. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He is the anointed one. The one that was promised long ago. None of this took God by surprise. You know that blow? Think, think about this. I'm getting sidetracked. Bear with me. God created the world. And in his foresight and foreknowledge, he knew what was going to happen. But yet he did it anyway. That, I mean, if you know something's going to go wrong, would you go ahead and go through with it anyway? But he did. He had a plan. None of this caught God by surprise. He had a plan. This leads us to verse 16, which is a key verse in this passage. Look what it says. Look with me. Verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God. Literally, God breathed. Now, there's some questions that stem from that. All Scripture is God breathed. The first question that might be asked, well, what is meant by the use of the term Scripture? What is he talking about? I've already told you. It's a reference to the Old Testament. The Greek word there is grapho, which we get our English word graffiti from. You see back in verse 15, he talks about holy scriptures. That's a reference back to the Old Testament. So the same thing holds true to here. He is telling Timothy, remember those scriptures. They wouldn't call it the Old Testament then. The New Testament wasn't there as of yet. That leads us to the next question. What is the meaning of the phrase, all Scripture? It's not referring to just one specific passage. Now, in Greek, there's no such thing as an indefinite article. A phone, a bulletin, a pulpit is always the, the bulletin, the pulpit. There's no indefinite article in the Greek. With that said, you could say every Scripture... Not just all scriptures, but every scripture. In other words, every part of the Bible is God-breathed. I will go even a step further and say even the words were chosen specifically for what God wanted to tell you and I. The Greek language is not a Greek class. I'm trying to stay away from that as much as I kind of want to go that way. But I tell you, in Greek, the words are very specific. There's five tenses of Greek. 
Okay, we have a past tense, right? That's all we have. A Dow taught class this morning. Well, he taught it sometime in the past, and that ended sometime in the past. But for example, I'm going to use this one example, and we'll move on. There are passages when it says, God so loved the world, or God loves the world. That action started eternity past, but it doesn't stop. It goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. So when you say God loves you, or God loved you, it doesn't stop, start and stop in the past. It has ramifications on into eternity future. But there's no way we can render that in English. Something I went, wow, when I learned that in seminary. The next one, well, you actually see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, when he talks about, therefore let all the house of Israel, he's not just talking about one or two people of Israel, he's talking about the entire nation. The third thing, do you read it all inspired scripture or all scripture? Once again, we're not talking about only certain passages. We're talking about the entire thing. And why I'm on this, any serious student of the Bible will look at more than just one, I didn't say a version, a translation. Personally, I look at the New King James. I look, I preach out of the New American Standard, the, the Holman, uh, the New Living Translation. I have like six or seven I can pull up and look. And I also look at the Greek and the Hebrew. I'm not a Greek and Hebrew scholar. I have a general sense of how the language works. But I tell you, regardless of what people claim on TikTok and Facebook, the translation you hold in your hand, there are some that are bad, but most translations I know you guys are using are good, reliable translations. And most of your study Bibles will put in italics where you need to go or have other renders because God inspired the scriptures. God also preserves his scripture. All right? What does it mean by he, God, God breathed it, that description? Well, he breathed his character into scripture. It's inherently inspired, and the scriptures owe their origin and distinctiveness to God himself. Now, you can probably make this conclusion on your own, but the minute you think, well, this is inspired, this is not, well, that's a very slippery slope to go down. If you take that step, then I'm going to say, well, what makes your salvation so true? How come you're convinced of that truth? I'm not convinced of this truth. That's the problem in our society. We want to pick and choose what is easy for us to swallow. It's easy for me to say, God loves you. I love you and you love me. But the minute we say, no, I need to love my enemies, pray for those who persecute me, that I'm going to do good to all, live at peace with all men as much as possible, we don't like so much that. Oh, we like to say, Tammy, if you would submit to me, everything would be fine. See where that says, wives, submit to your husbands. And we want to leave out that verse that says, gentlemen, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We don't like that part. See what I'm doing? We like to pick and choose what we, what's easy for us. There's a lot of hard stuff in scriptures. It's meant to be that way. Guess what? You can't live it out on your own. The Bible shouts to me, Tim, you cannot do this on your own strength or your ability. You need me, Tim. You need my Holy Spirit to give you the strength, the understanding, the discernment, and the confidence to do what I'm calling you to do. Which leads me to my next point. Because all Scripture is inspired, and he affirms that, it leads to the discussion of its usefulness or its profitability. Look what it says. Because of this, it's profitable for teaching, doctrine, 
Now, he's commending the Old Testament to be taught. How many Old Testament sermons do you hear nowadays? I've read through uh, Nehemiah before. That series was challenging for me because I didn't read much past that. They do the woohoo. The, you know, Nehemiah ends kind of messed up. You guys are looking at me. Remember that series? But we have to remember what the Old Testament contains the doctrine or the teaching of creation. Genesis 1 and 2. That's very foundational. The minute you think we're all here by a product of some cosmic goo, you rob life of us of meaning and purpose and value. Not only do you have the doctrine of creation, we also have the fall of man in Genesis 3, which tells us about our need for a Savior. And then in Isaiah 53, you have the nature of the atonement, talking about the suffering servant, what the Messiah would go through. There's tons of more I could talk about. But the Old Testament needs to be studied and understood. This is much as the New Testament. He says it's profitable for reproof or rebuking, to rebuke the errors of the false teachers, or rebuke our own selves. Hey, I thought this was this way, but Scripture has corrected me. Many of you could come to me with a question. Some of you have, and I said, look, if you show me by Scripture I'm wrong, then I'm wrong. I don't, I don't mind admitting that I'm wrong. No, it shows us, as sinners, where our failures are. What happened, and lead us into a new sense of peace and wholeness. That's what Scripture does. It affirms righteousness and also convicts us of sin and unrighteousness. It says it's profitable for correction. Helpful, helpful for convicting and misguided and the disobedient people, help them restoring them back to the right path, used to restore people to their spiritual condition that they have forfeited. You see that in the Israel experience in the wilderness in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, and verse 5. God corrects you not because he wants to be mean or to be hate. He's correcting you because he loves you. No different that you correct your child. Why? You trying to be me that child? No, you're trying to correct them so you won't get hurt. <laughs> I think I've shared this before. There was a Christian comedian talking about this subject, and he said, you know, if I see my child, a two-year-old, playing with a light socket, am I going to try to reason with the child? You know, if you do that, you can get hurt. The child ain't going to. A lot of us just go no and slap their hand. I might be a little crude, but next time little Johnny goes by that socket, he goes, ooh, that's bad. I hope you correct your children from being hurt. But that's why God corrects us. And he says it's also proper for training or instruction in righteousness. It provides the moral training that leads to righteous living. If you study and apply Scripture, that will lead you to have a holy lifestyle. In other words, it will help you be more like Christ today than you were yesterday. That's the whole goal. And in verse 17, he sums it up like this. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That word adequate could be complete or thoroughly. Literally, the definition of that Greek word, that translated adequate, describes a person who's who's in fit shape or condition. Describing somebody who's completely furnished to do whatever God calls him or her 
to do. The scripture will fully prepare you and qualify you to undertake any task that God is asking you to do. What a tragedy it is for any Christian leader, teacher, to be spiritually unprepared when you have all that you need right here at your hands. And don't forget, you have his word, but you also have his spirit that's guiding you and illuminating the truth of the scriptures. God has given you everything that you need, but he's not going to force you. You have to take the discipline. You have to take the time to employ those disciplines, to live it out. Now, as we wrap all this up, and by the way, this is not a total comprehensive, there's no way I don't have enough time. Let's turn our attention to Peter, if you will, and that's in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Let's turn there. Very briefly, see what Peter has to say. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But look what he says. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For, we, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such as an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made, made more sure, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So that taken, with what we've walked through with Timothy passage, we can come to this conclusion. Contained in the Scriptures are eyewitnesses, their account. The Gospels are eyewitnesses. They're telling us what they saw and what they heard and what Jesus taught them. By the way, all of them except for John were killed for their faith. And the the event that Peter is mentioning on the Holy Mountain is talking about the transfiguration, which you can read about in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. Mark 9, verses 2 through 8, and Luke 9, verses 28 through 36. When Jesus was transformed, they saw his majestic glory. Is the event that Peter is talking about. So, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it contains eyewitness testimony. Those are two convicting things that I should grab our attention this morning about the Bible. Do you affirm or deny this truth about the Scriptures or the Bible? And before you answer, think of the implications of how you answer that question. It has huge ramifications. You can start with your salvation. The minute you start questioning the truth about the Bible, the first question, well, how do I know that this is true about my salvation? How do I know? 
That's where the enemy begins with doubt in your mind. There's no wrong with having doubt. As we said last week, take that to Christ. Search the scriptures. Talk to other believers. That's why our mature believers are are to mentor our younger ones, to help them find their way. See, scripture and scripture alone must be our plumb line in which we gauge everything else. We have fake news, rumors, gossip, running amok in our society. So many people claiming to have some new information. This new age movement, I don't think it's still out there, but not as going as strong as it once was. That is simply second century Noxism, which is some special wisdom you have to have. It's the same thing that's repackaged. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun. We have dumbed down education so much in both our public schools and in the church. We should know these things, but we don't. But we don't. So many people are claiming to have new information that is based only on their experience, but nothing else. I hope and I pray, and I'm pretty much thoroughly convinced, about 99.9999% sure, if I stood up here and said, you can be saved by believing in Mickey Mouse, I know at least five of you, if not more, would stand up and say, Tim, you're wrong. And you should stand up and say, I'm wrong. But instead, there are things being taught that are not true. An example. I'll use his name. His name is Creeflo Dollar part of the Word of Faith movement. He's walking through Genesis, talking about creation. And he gets to the point, Genesis 1.16, let us make man in our own image. And he makes the remark that since everything else reproduces after its kind, right? The trees reduce after their kind, the animals reduce after their kind. And he says, since God had put himself underneath that principle, that dogs make dogs, birds make birds, and so, so when gods get together... They make a little God. And he makes this statement. You're not really just a human. You are a little God. The only thing human about you is that body. And everybody shouts amen. Ladies and gentlemen, that is heresy from the pit of hell. That's a talking in reference to the Trinity. We are not gods. We are special in the creation order because we are giving a living soul. It says that in Genesis, that God breathed in us the breath of life, and we became a living soul. Who did Jesus die for? He died for the birds and the dogs. He died for human beings. We are made in his image. We are special. But by default, just because you're made in the image of God doesn't mean you're part of the family of God. You have to come to Christ to be part of the family because your sin has to be dealt with. And you have an option. Either you come to Jesus now and turn your life over to him, And let his sacrifice pay the way. Or you can wait for all eternity and you pay for it in hell for the rest of all eternity. It's up to you. Man, as simple as it gets. Well, let me ask you this. Who do you trust? Who do you believe? Who do do you rely upon? Who do you have hope in? Who do you have faith in? What do you place your confidence in? Who do you depend upon? As you think of this answer, remember again, there is no indefinite article in the Greek. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, 
and the truth and the life. There's no indefinite article in the original language. It's not, I am a way. Jesus is declaring he is the only way. That no one comes to the Father but through him. By the way, the beginning I am is two Greek words. I, I am. The stress on the I. So Jesus is making it certain that he and he alone is the only way. Not one of the ways, but the only way. Well, Tim, that's very exclusive if you make that statement. No, it's not. Because Jesus says, yeah, I am the way. And by the way, anybody who wants can come. If you come to me, I won't cast you out. Jesus says that. He invites everybody, and regardless, race, social standing, economics, come. Everybody come. The invitation is open to everyone. It's a great thing about salvation. It's a free gift for anybody. If you're waiting on me, anybody else, to turn things around, you're putting your faith in the wrong person. I follow Christ as much as I can, but at the end of the day, I'm a sinner just like you. The person I put my faith in, the person I have absolute confidence in, the person I stand upon, like Martin Luther said, here I stand, I can go no other place. That's where I have to take my stand too. Upon the rock of Christ. Who are you trusting? What are you trusting? Oh, sure, we might say we trust Christ, but are we living that out? We're about to head in a real dark time, I believe. The economy could collapse. I don't know. It sure looks that way to me, the way things are headed. Who are you going to trust? I'm going to end with this illustration. It took me a long time to learn this. I'm still trying to get my mind wrapped around it. When I went into the ministry, money became an issue. How, how am I going to provide for my family? But through a long of weeping and gnashing of teeth and struggling, I learned this truth. God is always the only source of my needs. Who meets it? But he uses different vehicles on earth to take care of that need. Could be American Airlines. It's Forestburg Baptist Church right now. He chooses. But still the source of everything comes from him. Now that's one thing easy to say. But let's be honest. That's hard to live out. When you're trying to make it and put food on the table. God knows your needs. What did Jesus say? He knows what you need before you even ask him. He wants to meet that need, but he, he wants you to come to him. No different when my daughters really need something. I don't want them going to you or a stranger. I want them to come to me, their father. God's the same way. Don't go looking over here. Come here to me. God says, I will take care of what you need. Now, he doesn't say he'll take care of what you want. He'll take care of what you need. And right here is living proof that I haven't missed a meal. <laughs> I have clothes on my back. I have men and women who love me in Christ. I'm serving a church. 
Yes, things are bad in my country, but I still have the freedom to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever I go. It's difficult at times. But I have a lot more to be thankful for than what I can complain about. And yes, I do fall in that just like you do. And that's why we got to be careful who we hang around. People who complain, if you hang around them long enough, you'll start complaining. Do you know Christ? Are you living the scriptures out? Just don't know the stories and know what it says, but are you putting it into practice? And are you ready to make a stand? The scripture is without any error. It's God-breathed. It contains eyewitness testimony because it's already come. People are coming after the Bible. They're going to question you on your belief on it. We have to study it. We have to know it. We have to believe it. That's crucial. We have tons of translations. We have tons of biblical help to help you on your way. Please, please. What would Martin Luther tell us today if he was here? You realize in this time and age, the Bible was not written in his German language. It was written in Latin. Protestant Reformation, people translated the Bible in the vernacular language. Perhaps you have a Tyndale Bible with you today. He died because he dared to put the Bible in the English language. That Bible you have in your hands, electronically, that's because someone died and sacrificed, many sacrificed to get that Bible into your language. So you can read it, you can understand it. And yet, sadly, tragically, it stands as a paperweight on many people's coffee tables, never to be opened. Please pick it up, read it, study it. Don't take my word for it, read it for yourselves. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment. We thank you so much for your word. Father, you wanted to communicate to us about who you are. To reveal yourself to us in a way that we can understand. Father, so much we don't understand. But we do know that you are the one true God. We do know that you're sitting on your throne. You're completely sovereign. You created everything that we see. You created us. And then when we turn our back on you, dear God, you didn't let us go off in the darkness by ourselves, but Father, you did something about it. You sent your only Son. Knowing that there'd be many who would turn away, but still you sent him. And Jesus, you still died on the cross for all, every human that's ever walked this earth. You died for them because you love your creation. Father, I pray that truth of the gospel would saturate our minds and our hearts this morning. And that as we go on with our week, dear God, we reflect upon it. May to make changes in our lives. Father, I pray for those who are gathered in this room and for those 
who are gathered via electronic media. And dear God, you will continue to make yourself known to them. Draw them close to your side. May, your, may they feel your presence even now. Your presence that brings a, a peace that just surpasses all understanding. And continue to search us. Search our minds and search our hearts of any sin. So that we may confess that to you. Repent from it. And receive forgiveness. May nothing hold us back, dear God. Continue to call. Continue to move. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Just stay with me, please.